Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. In today's episode, we will be discussing trauma and children. Now, trauma can be narrowly defined as a physical event like an assault or a kind of physical injury like traumatic brain injury, but more broadly, trauma refers to the impact that an incident or condition has on an individual or perhaps a few people. Collective trauma refers to traumatic experiences that impact entire groups of people, communities, or societies. Traumatic events, periods, conditions, including school and other mass shootings, natural disasters, wars, pandemic, and other large-scale tragedies like September 11th are, of course, highly disturbing to adults. But today, we will address their impact on children and how parents can speak with their child when these catastrophic events occur. Each of today's guests on this podcast are experts on this topic and are my great colleagues at Kennedy Krieger Institute. They are Dr. Lindsay Serencioni, a pediatric psychologist who is the Director of Outpatient Operations for the Pediatric Psychology Consultation Program at Kennedy Krieger, and is an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Dr. Gabrielle Blackman, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, is the Medical Director for the Kennedy Krieger School Programs and is also an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Patricia Shepley is a licensed clinical social worker, the director of social work, and the clinical director of the psychiatric mental health program at Kennedy Krieger. So welcome, Lindsay, Gabri, and Trish. And Trish, let's start with you and some definitions. Can you explain the term ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, so we can uh, get started with this discussion this, today? Thank you, Brad. ACEs range from experiences that happen directly to a person, um, such as all types of child abuse, physical or emotional neglect, witnessing household violence, um, loss of a parent, accidents, medical traumas, being a victim in a disaster, or having family members um, who have mental illness, um, who are addicted to alcohol or other substances, or are incarcerated. ACEs, along with um, increasing collective traumas, as you described, can lead to toxic stress. Toxic stress um, is an overactivation of the stress response, like revving a car engine continuously, and that will result um, in wear and tear on the body. So accumulated ACEs place children at greater risk of developing chronic illnesses, mental health conditions, and substance abuse in adulthood. So thank you. So you, you brought up uh, toxic stress, as, as you state, the, the ever-present uh, toxicity that comes from, from ongoing stress. Maybe traumatic stress is in the setting of, a, of a, an event, a specific event. And the two certainly uh, are present and important, uh, especially after a traumatic event. Gabri, maybe we can take it from there. After a traumatic event, what are the what are the first steps a parent or guardian should take uh, to help mitigate the potential for uh, the impact of repeated trauma? And parents should also help their child to communicate about the event. 
They should make sure the child has a correct understanding of what happens so they aren't responding to misinformation and help them express their feelings if they are experiencing any feelings at this time. Um, this can be done through various modalities. It can be done through a discussion, but also through journaling, music, or art if these are better modalities for the particular child. So you're really getting at uh, the kinds of things that are adaptive approaches to, to stress or trauma. What, what are some of the, what would you say would be some of the maladaptive responses that we see kids have in response to, to traumatic events? Maladaptive responses would include behaviors such as self-harm behaviors, which would include substance abuse, um, cutting on yourself or binge eating. They also include intrusive thoughts or ruminations when you have negative thought cycle that you just can't break and are stuck there. Um, emotional numbing, where you really feel almost nothing at all, um, which isn't healthy, or on the other extreme, um, emotional outbursts. Also, procrastination and avoidance can be unhealthy and maladaptive coping mechanisms when they prevent you from getting on with your regular functioning. I, I want to get at the, the, uh, the issue of how those kinds of responses can look at different developmental stages. But before we do, Gabby, maybe um, what do we know or uh, maybe touch on what we know about how this, this kind of toxic or traumatic stress affects the developing brain? It's a big topic, I know, but maybe address uh, some of the some of what we know these days. Yeah. So as you said, um, Brad, we do know that repeat trauma does affect can affect the brain. Um, chronically high levels of stress hormones cause decreased immune function, and this can lead to an overactive amygdala, which is the alarm center of the brain. It can also lead to a shrunken hippocampus, which is the area that stores memory of what happened, and can cause a less active prefrontal cortex resulting in difficulty managing emotions with either increased or decreased expression of the emotions, poor impulse control, and difficulty solving problems and learning new information. However, these changes can be reversible. Yeah, so that, that's the impact on the brain. Of course, uh, there's also the uh, impact on other organs in addition to the brain. Uh, it's a, it by itself is an is a important and expansive topic. But let, let's, Lindsay, let's turn to this question of developmental uh, aspects of how children are responding to uh, stress and trauma. How do, how do kids look different across development and how do they differ from adults in this respect? Thanks, Brad. I think this is a really important um, question to ask. And the first thing I would say is that it's really important for us to remember that trauma itself is relative. So two people, adults or children, can experience the same traumatic event and have very, very different responses. So one event um, might be perceived as one individual as very traumatic and distressing, while to the other individual witnessing the same event, um, it can appear you know, mildly upsetting, but there are no lasting effects. Um, when it comes to the differences that we see in traumatic uh, responses in kids and adults, the mechanisms can be similar, but the outcomes can look vastly different. So for example, in young kids, we might see more irritability, separation anxiety, temper tantrums, hypervigilance, or sort of always kind of being on alert for something bad to happen, um, and a lot of sleep disturbances in young kids. In older kids or school-aged children, we might see some school avoidance. We might see complaints of stomach aches or headaches. Um, and they can also be really reluctant to leave people who they perceive as safe to go into new circumstances. 
kids with developmental disabilities or kids who have limited verbal expression um, may display regressions in adaptive behaviors. So things like toilet training or feeding themselves and dressing themselves, they may exhibit more difficulty doing those particular skills. And you may see increases in problematic behaviors that had previously um, resolved. I I can imagine that uh, parents listening to this are automatically going to be thinking about topics like social media and the news. So, Lindsay, maybe uh, we could address how how what roles social media and the news play in the the process of uh, dealing with uh, traumatic stress, as well as the the way that they are involved in contributing to perhaps to the the trauma as it plays out. Absolutely, I think media and social media is such a hot topic these days anyway, and particularly in regard to traumatic events that may have happened in another location. Um, One of the things that we need to remember is that when we're talking to kids about trauma, we need to do that at a developmentally appropriate level. So understanding what your child's ability to understand these events is is really critical. Um, And also remembering that most news outlets are geared toward adults. So they're naturally going to be talking at a level that typically isn't appropriate for children and kids with developmental disabilities. Allowing your kids free access to media after a trauma can actually increase their fear about what happened and also decrease their their sense of safety in their own immediate surroundings. Um, There are lots of news and media outlets that are geared specifically toward kids. For example, um, Sesame Street often has really lovely packages and printables and things that resources that parents can use to talk to kids about trauma at a developmentally appropriate level. When it comes to social media, remember there's no guarantee that things that are posted are true or even helpful. So if you have a kid who accesses social media regularly, it can be a really great time to talk to them about how to differentiate fact from opinion and also how to step away when social media becomes distressing. Finally, one thing I really want to highlight is that, you know, at Kennedy Krieger, we serve a lot of kids with developmental disabilities and also kids who are nonverbal for a number of reasons. It's really incumbent upon us as adults to remember that even if kids are nonverbal, they're still picking up on what's in their surroundings. And so again, you know, just being mindful of maybe not leaving the news on in the background um, when your kids are present, because they're still taking that information in and processing it in the best way that they possibly can. Such an important point. I'm really glad you brought up the 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 issue of uh, keeping in mind developmentally appropriate exposures, but also recognizing that individuals with developmental disabilities, nonverbal individuals, are also going to be processing this information. Of course, so Gabby, maybe we take it from there as we think about what what can parents do to help a child respond to trauma, keeping in mind that uh, some for some the, the incorporation of the fact that some children have developmental or intellectual disabilities has to be part of the consideration. What do you advise there? I want to start off just talking about for all children in general, um, the parents should try to contain their own anxiety as much as they can um, because their child is going to feed off of this anxiety. And as much as the parent can be a calming presence, that will be helpful for the child. It's really important to maintain routines 
if possible, the circumstances might make it so that the previous routines can't be maintained. And in that case, establishing new routines is helpful because it's reassuring for kids to have this consistency. It helps uh, minimize their anxiety about the situation. It's important to keep the same family rules, again, for having that consistency, um, but perhaps decrease the demands a bit if it's gonna be helpful for the child. Um, distractions are a great thing. Um, having some fun activities for the child, either with friends or family or alone if they prefer to help take their mind off of things. Choose a good time to talk to your child um, and listen well, be patient, go at the child's pace. Try to correct misinformation if they have any misinformation. They may have picked up things um, that aren't correct and their anxiety is increased because of things that aren't even true. So this can be helpful for them. Allow them to ask questions if they have questions, but some kids don't have questions about it and that's okay too. Um, don't dwell on some of the graphic details um, because that can be re-traumatizing for the child. Um, it's important to always answer honestly it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, this will help build trust with the child and help them to feel more secure. And as Lindsay discussed, it's important to prevent or limit exposure to news coverage and social media. It's important also to understand that children cope in different ways. Some prefer to be with others. Um, some prefer to be alone. They might cry in response. They might not. All of that is okay and can be normal. And as I mentioned earlier in this segment, the parent can help the child find outlets to express their emotions. This might be through talking, but it might be through other modalities like journaling, art, or music. And they may express various feelings like anger, guilt, or sadness. All of those can be normal. It's important to acknowledge those feelings and validate them. Finding ways to relax, like with breathing exercises, can be helpful. And it's important to let the child know that the situation wasn't their fault because a lot of children will take things on that parents don't even realize they might be thinking that. And it's important to give that kind of reassurance. Specifically for children with autism spectrum disorders and intellectual disabilities, um, we want to assess their understanding of the situation and recognize that they may require more time supporting guidance than others may need. Um, you want to simplify the language so that it's appropriate for their level so that they can follow along with the conversation and also with the pace of the discussion. And information may need to be repeated a bit more. Um, some of kids, especially those with autism spectrum disorders, may be visual learners. And so having visual supports as part of the conversation may be helpful. And once again, it's important to have that normal routine and structure. Um, I wanted to give an example from our Kennedy Krieger school programs where um, we have situations where a parent may call in and give us a heads up that uh, a student may have had a traumatic event happen, like the loss of a family member or a pet. Um, and so our staff will get this information. And if this is a student, especially who's on the autism spectrum, who may really um, benefit from that structure and routine to help get them through the day and help manage their anxiety, we want to keep their day the same as much as possible. So if they have a staff person get them off the bus every day, even if that's not their preferred staff person or their favorite person, if it's the person they expect to be there, that's the person we want to send to get them off the bus. Um, because then they have that reassurance that things are going to be the same here at school and they can get through their day. And just like that, we want to follow through the day as much as possible, keeping things the same. Um, final point I wanted to make is that kids um, 
overall, especially young kids, but also kids with developmental disabilities in particular, um, may follow a different timeline and may have a different sense of time and processing of an event. Um, I worked with a student several years ago um, in our middle school program who had uh, suffered the death of a parent. And um, school staff and his mother were a little surprised that he seemed to have no reaction whatsoever. He seemed like his normal self at school and at home with no changes in behavior or mood at all while the rest of the family was grieving. But two to three months later, seemingly out of the blue, he really started having a, a typical grief reaction where he was crying at school and at home, talking about his father, giving nice anecdotes about things that he missed and really hadn't started processing it until two to three months later. So that's something to be aware of that may happen. And if your child isn't processing it immediately, it may come at a later date. It's such a great set of, of insights. Thank you for that, Gabri. I, I can also imagine that some parents might be listening and, and saying, how do I even get into this discussion? How do I broach the topic? So Lindsay, what are your thoughts about that, that entree into the discussion, get, parents getting over the hump and uh, finding their way into th this really important uh, content? Yeah, it's such a tough question, right, Brad? Because, you know, we as, as adults and caregivers want to do the right thing. We're so afraid to do the wrong thing. Um, but I think a really nice guiding principle is to let your child take the lead, right? Check in with them, um, but be neutral. Because remember, trauma is relative. So you may perceive something as, as really distressing while your child is sort of coping with it really well. Um, one of my favorite ways to approach these conversations is, is to just ask, would you like to talk about what happened? Is there anything in particular that you want to discuss? And then follow your child's lead in that conversation. Um, if there are concerns about difficulty coping, one really nice question that parents can ask is, what can I do to help you feel safe? Um, it may or may not be within your control as a parent to provide that, but that's a really nice talking point for understanding how your kid is processing this, this traumatic event. So Trish, um, of course, parents are experiencing, often are experiencing the, the trauma too, the same, the same events, the same environment that, that, that their child is. Uh, this is a, by itself a, a big topic, but how important is it for parents and other adults in that child's life to manage their own stress uh, in a, the observation of their, their child um, in this complex setting? What are your thoughts there? Thank you, Brad. Um, as Gabri mentioned, um, parents um, and other important adults need to set the tone for ongoing coping for our children. And so we need to also understand how to manage um, our level of calm in addressing their concerns. Um, so initially, there may be some authentic reaction that's experienced by just the surprise and the shock of the situation. So I'd like to share an example of a colleague um, that the day after the Uvalde shootings chose to drive an older child in the family to school. Um, she was aware that her older child was sensitive to the younger child in the house and so didn't really say much that night after hearing the news. And so she chose instead to drive her to school to create that opportunity so that they could have a chance to talk so that her older child could ask any questions that she had 
um, and to um, express any feelings that needed to be expressed. And, and this ended up helping both of them feel a lot calmer that day. Um, for parents, it's most important for them to um, feel comfortable assessing their own needs and proactively learning how to cope with situations um, based upon how they're going to allow that information in the household to be discussed or watched on the news. So coordination between adults and a household is very important. Um, understanding what's going to be happening um, in terms of the information being discussed in the school situation and in um, your, your child's setting. Um, it may be important for a parent who's feeling very um, overwhelmed by what's occurred to seek their own support and talking with friends or having a plan with household members to just step back um, when they're feeling overwhelmed. Uh, that can mean that they're going to develop their own coping routines and adults need to decide how they cope best. Some people really love to use the breathing exercises and visualizations. And for others, it's to get out and to engage in just some exercise and that will help bring them calm. Um, in any event, um, the go-to for them is important and they're modeling that as an example to their children will draw them into using regular coping skills when stress um, arises in their lives. So these are excellent points, Trish. And it's, it's the, the idea that the adult managing their own stress and their response probably contributes to uh, reassurance for the child. Uh, Lindsay, maybe return to the topic of what other ways can can we work to um, help reassure a child in, in this context? Sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of scientific and empirical data out there um, about this subject, but one of my favorite statements comes from Fred Rogers, um, at help your child look for the helpers, right? Um, helping kids identify trusted adults in their environment, particularly after a traumatic event, but even when a traumatic event hasn't happened, teach your kids to identify who they can go to for help. That might be a family member, a teacher, or anyone else that they feel safe with. Um, but giving them a plan for what to happen when they're scared can really increase their sense of control and safety. Um, I would say one of the most critical pieces for adults to remember is that kids are excellent lie detectors. And after a trauma, it can be really natural for us as caregivers to want to say, I promise everything's going to be okay. I promise this is not going to happen at your school or on your block or in your home. But if we can't guarantee that promise, it's really unwise to give it to a child. An alternative might be, I promise we're doing everything we can to keep you safe. Or I've talked with your teachers and I know they have a plan for keeping you safe. Those things are true and trustworthy um, and, and don't land you in a situation where you've told a child something that you can't guarantee. Um, just one more quick point. I think very often after a trauma, communities come together and they want to support kids and families. Um, one thing that you might want to think about is giving your child permission to defer those conversations, right? So sometimes adults ask questions like, what happened and are you okay? 
And it's very well-meaning, but it might contribute to that child experiencing more distress about the trauma. So, you know, explicitly give your child permission to say, I don't really want to talk about that now. Or can we talk about this later while my parents are with us? Um, That can really just give them a way to relieve some of that pressure and decrease the stress that they're experiencing. Excellent points. Thank you for that. Uh, Trish, um, I'm sure on the minds of parents will be what is the trigger for seeking professional help? When is it time to, to take that step? Well, there's probably a trigger that happens both within the parents and in the observations of the child. So first of all, if a parent is feeling like they're unable emotionally to give to their child what they need, like the sense of calm that we've discussed, um, it, it's great to seek help because they're doing their first job, which is to assess themselves. Secondly, um, it's time to seek help if the child's symptoms don't go away after a reasonable period of time, they get worse instead of better, or new symptoms emerge and continue. Um, When the emotional experience is getting in the way of day-to-day functioning, such as being able to sleep or continuing to need to sleep with parents, uh, refusing to go to school, uh, losing interest in activities they usually really enjoy, or you see school performance drop off in a way that um, just continues. It's time to seek help. Before we wrap up today, I, I know we've, uh, we all are aware of some really excellent resources out there that we've shared with each other. Trish, maybe, maybe describe some of those sources and we can put links to those sources uh, on the website associated with this uh, episode of the podcast. Yes. So we've come up with links um, that may be helpful uh, for anyone listening to this podcast um, that are from SAMHSA, from Sesame Street, uh, from um, the um, Harvard um, group, from um, the American Academy of Adolescent Psychiatry and the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'll just say that SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, uh, a federal government administration. Yeah, so we'll have all of those links available. You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. This month, we're sharing information about talking to your child about traumas. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm joined by my colleagues at Kennedy Krieger, Dr. Lindsay Serencioni, Dr. Gabrielle Blackman, and Patricia Shepley. Thank you to our guests for sharing your expertise today, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. Please take a moment to rate this podcast, and if you'd like, share it with your friends. Please check out our entire library of topics on Your Child's Brain at wypr.org, kennedykrieger.org, wypr.org studios, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain.